1: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender and loud synchronized chants and very expensive bracelets. So, kind of everything. For the next four weeks, you get to hear me, Cat Chow, fall down this giant rabbit hole of something I cannot stop thinking about. And this week, that rabbit hole is more like a rabbit TikTok vortex, if that's even a thing. Helping me out of that vortex, or maybe deep in it with me, is the sociologist and MacArthur genius and New York Times columnist, Tressie McMillan-Cotton. And you'll hear from Tressie in just a bit. First, two important words. Bama Rush.
0: A Zeta at the University of Alabama, please come to the stage for a roll call.
2: Queens of the Rump, shit, good grades on it. gamma
1: Rush yeah, is for the uninitiated, called Sorority Formal Recruitment at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. That's a mouthful, but that's the formal name. And it's this global phenomenon, thanks to TikTok with so many young women documenting the rush process and millions of people at home following along.
0: Get ready for the first time in the Zeta Tava sorority house, already losing my voice.
2: So, in the Zeta sorority house, there are only forty eight of us.
0: In about two weeks, so I'm going to show you what's in my rush bag. Okay, so starting off, my bag itself is from Amazon, and then that little C patch
1: I got from Amazon we
2: headed to the house about ten. And we had a big bid day brunch, and then we took a ton of pictures, and then we all got to read the bid day list, which is literally my favorite part of the day because everyone is so excited to see their girl.
0: Joining the
1: right sorority at Alabama, or really any university, is a big deal to these women. Being a part of the right sorority gives you a place to live, a full social calendar, friends, a dating pool, a professional network. And after watching these TikToks for a while, you start to notice how standardized everything feels. There's kind of this homogeneity, so to speak, which is very striking to say the least
2: get ready with me for the
1: official season three of alabama rush this right here is kylan she's a member of zeta tau alpha she's massively popular on bama rush tiktok and she went through the recruitment process already and now she's become this kind of window into what sorority life is like on the other side have
0: prepared describing their philanthropy their house what it's like to be a part of the sisterhood then from there they will rank their top like i think it's their top she was formerly
1: miss ohio teen usa and just to give you a small sense of her she's white thin has dyed blonde hair that's often styled in these big big waves and that description could be applied to so many of these women take the tiktoks that they've been recording that show their outfits of the day
0: okay so it's preston alabama so we're gonna do ootd my dress is from lake forest shop my shoes i really don't know how to pronounce
1: the brand here's generally how they work so a thin blonde woman she's standing in her dorm room near her twin sized bed there's you know like a bright comforter with floral designs she's showing what she's wearing but also most importantly she's naming the brand
0: hey guys bama rush day one ootd My top is gold hinge. My skirt is gold hinge. My shoes are golden goose. My necklace is David Yurman. These are E. Newton. David Yurman, David Yurman. Michelle. My earrings are Amazon. And then my rings are David Yurman, David Yurman, David Yurman. And then this is Dior. Okay, so
1: really quick, that mention of those bracelets, David Yurman. I had to look up what that brand was. I had never heard of it. But authentic David Yurman bangles, they start at a few hundred bucks. And the most expensive ones on their website are nearly triple the cost of -of out-of-state tuition at Alabama. This jewelry, these armfuls of bangles, they're this signal of quiet luxury and generational wealth. And that so many of these teenagers are performing in this aspirational, standardized way, that says a lot about the greater rush industrial complex. And this whole thing about Rush, it's not just an Alabama thing. It's a Southern thing. It's a window into femininity and how it's performed and consumption culture and so much more. Bama
2: Rush is ultimately a form of competitive femininity that the University of Alabama absolutely benefits from.
1: There's Tressie McMillan Cotton, And she recently wrote this wonderful essay in the New York times about Bama rush. She is going to help us unpack it all after the break. Hi waves listeners. If you're into the show and you want to hear more subscribe to our feed, new episodes come out every Thursday morning and while you're there, check out our other episodes too, like last week's episode with Sachi Cole in the host seat. Saatchi was talking about the Spanish soccer president forcibly kissing a player after Spain's FIFA Women's World Cup final win. That's a mouthful to say, but it is a very good listen. Highly recommend.
0: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com.
1: I'm Kat Chow. Here to talk Bama Rush and TikTok Rush with me is Tressie McMillan-Cotton. Hi, Tressie.
2: It's a real pleasure to be here, Kat. Thanks for having me.
1: Why are people so drawn to Bama Rush? It's just this strange phenomenon of watching these young women go through sorority rush and do so
2: much. It is a bit of a train wreck, isn't
1: it? Yeah, Um... I'll call it that.
2: (laughs) but this in particular i think is in, happening in a moment. i think that the bama rush captures our fascination and our discomfort right now about womanhood and gender. we are to, you know, maybe misquote or quote Judith Butler having some gender trouble. and we don't know where the lines are, especially in pop culture where we don't always want to have on our thinking caps and we don't want to think too deeply. And so when something comes along, it's kind of soothing, Like, oh, this is, you know, has enough of the familiar tropes where I feel safe here. Gender is still what I think it is. It's still normal, quote unquote, normal in some places. So I think the fact that this Bama Rush phenomenon is unfolding at the exact same time that conversations about gender, um, about trans people is happening in the popular media, especially in the news media and the political discourse is happening. I don't think that's an accident. So, yes, there's a... Escapism and there is voyeurism, but I also think that there is something really soothing about watching it right now.
1: I'm glad you said that because I think that for me watching it, I came to these TikToks through Anne Helen Peterson, who is, you know, a, a culture writer. Um, and I think that one of the things that I just kept coming back to when I was reading this is these are teenaged girls who are on the cusp of becoming women. And there's such a set mold that they're falling into. And why am I so fascinated by watching them perform these ideas of their specific femininity, which is so different from
2: mine? I think their their youth is part of the fascination, by the way. I was really wrestling with how many of the women in my life were watching this and... um. You know listen, I am surrounded by brilliant ambitious women um, not to pat myself on the back, but you know my, my you know my my tribe is full of some bad women and um, and so many of them across I should say across race, And across like social origins background, like we may all be roughly the same social class now, but we all come from roughly different places to end up here. And so a lot of people were watching this um, in my world and I was really wrestling with why that was in the piece. And one of the things I came to was, I think we are a little obsessed with the fact that we, a generation or two, some of us, uh, older than these young women we know what happens next for them in life we know what the trap of performing that feminine ambition is for them because they are they are ambitious like many of us were at that time in our lives if you are you know a high achieving woman in your 30s or 40s chances are excellent that you were really ambitious in college too and I think there's a little bit of, I don't know, sadness or regret is the right way to think about this. But I think it's looking uh, sort of like in a funhouse mirror at the past and watching them go through this um, this ritual of coming of age and knowing, maybe hoping, but maybe also knowing that things have not gotten much better. They're, that the choices for what kind of women they will be allowed to become are not markedly different for them than they were for us when we were coming of age.
1: It makes me think about, I guess, this type of pipeline that I kept thinking about. To me, I connect these young women who are doing the sorority rush, who are making their chance, who are producing their outfits of the day. And it's so curated where they're in their little dorms. Their bangles probably cost as much as many people's rents. um, And what they're doing is they are just showing that they are younger versions of, to me, the white mom influencer culture or, you know, the white women that you see on these home renovation shows. And they're kind of this portrait of a competent, savvy mother who can do so much but still remains soft and apolitical with like capital V values, the trad wife
2: or traditional wife. Oh, there was so much pre-audition, sort of pre-performance for Trad Wife in the Bama Rush uh, videos for me. So the Trad Wife, traditional wife movement, so much of it driven by influencer culture itself, a offshoot of the early internet, um, influ- the Mormon influence on early internet mommy blogging uh, that happened in the early 2000s. And so there's sort of a secular religious vein and impulse to this, by the way, um, that I think kind of gets lost in the mix. And so that also feels really at home to it being in the South, a place where religion is still very overt where you can still very much talk about what church you go to and that is the home of your like of you know starting a business and doing your formal networking. And so there was a lot of to me performance in this of saying, do you see I'm prepared for this sort of social role I will be expected to take on? You know, 40 years ago that social role meant they went to college to attract the right kind of husband and to eventually exit the labor market to eventually not work and to be a stay-at-home mother. Well, you know, not even really well-to-do families can't afford that anymore. So the way we've adopted feminism to allow for that is to say, okay, maybe you don't exit the labor market, but you soften your female ambitions by making it, you know, you work from home, you start your own business, you become a mompreneur. So you wrap your, you know, your professional ambitions in the, um, you know, in the the soft life of motherhood.
1: You harness the identity and you try and capitalize on it in a way that is acceptable.
2: That is not threatening. This fundamentally comes down to not being seen as a direct threat to their male counterparts because ultimately the hottest sorority on campus is not the one that has the smartest girls or the most successful girls. It is the sorority that has the girls that are most popular with the fraternities. And so you have to not be a direct threat to your male counterparts. And it's saying, hey, I know how to do that. I know how to be ambitious in a way that is non-threatening.
1: Right, and non-threatening to men. That is actually one thing that I kept thinking about when I was watching Rachel Fleet's documentary Bama Rush, where she had interviewed these two sorority sisters who were trying to define what a top sorority was. And I mean, to your point, yes, it's just the most attractive um, girls in these houses. And I think Rachel was trying to get at what makes them attractive and to whom. And it's so much about the male gaze potential new members are trying to get in, but also these sororities are trying to get like the best girls. For I sure. That even mean?
0: Yeah, so the ranking system, I truly believe is based on the fraternities. So essentially they have a social calendar and they get to mix with certain sororities, but it's only a limited amount. And the fraternities wanna be mixing with the hottest sororities, of course, cause you know, they're 20 year old males. So that's kind of where the ranking system comes from. They want to make sure the girls who are wearing their letters are up to their standards.
1: I keep thinking about how sororities are always kind of in reaction to the male gaze, the creation of them even, when women were not going to universities more widely, you know, when they weren't allowed in many cases. Fraternities were seen as this space for men to congregate, and so women, the few who were in uh, higher education, thought, "Why not have something for us too?" But I also really can't get past the language that is used, also in reaction to that male gaze, um, and you've talked about that a bit before. And one of the words that I want to talk about is cute, which comes up a lot in these TikToks.
0: I'm going to give you a cute little OOTD. And then we got these cute little cowgirl boots. My dress (laughs) is from For Love and Lemons. It's super cute. She's so cute with the two little bows. I got the cutest little earrings from Mary Catherine. Super cute. Wish us luck.
1: Can you say more about cute and tell us about how it relates to these women who are rushing?
2: To be cute is to not be sexually powerful. So it is to be attractive in a way that, again, comes back to men and the male gaze, to be non-threatening. And when I, I watch those videos through the lens of who is this made for, like who who is the audience, that emphasis on cuteness The outfits, the diminutive language, the color palette even, uh, the dance routines, so much of it was so obviously about not being seen as sexually powerful, which of course is a certain type of femininity that is meant to be consumed, but not owned by the women themselves, right? Because when you are sexually powerful, you're a mature woman, uh, that has always been seen as a threat to the male gaze because it shifts the, the orientation from what do men want to what do women want, to women's pleasures, to women's desire. And so that emphasis on cute to me, yes, it might be, you know, age appropriate, but these are young women, but emphasis on women, um, the male counterparts don't have that emphasis on something that minimizes them. You know, there's no male equivalent of cute.
1: What was really interesting. So I was, I started reading this book that you recommended in one of your um, Instagram live conversations. And it is Our Aesthetic Categories by Cyan Ngai. And there's this sentence that she has in the introduction that I just want to read for our listeners revolving around the desire for an ever more intimate, ever more sensuous relation to objects already regarded as familiar and unthreatening, cuteness is not just an aestheticization, but an eroticization of powerlessness, evoking tenderness for small things, but also sometimes a desire to belittle or diminish them further, which is what you're saying. But to me, what really stuck out is that eroticization of a powerlessness where that powerlessness, that diminutive nature is something that is sexually attractive.
2: I want to say that uh, this book um, was so much in the back of my mind when I was writing this piece, by the way. And if I, you know, if I had all of the power in the world, (laughs) that essay probably just would have been one big conversation with exactly that sentence and that idea about how difficult it is for these young women to walk a line in a consumerist culture where uh, you make money by being sexual, but you earn power by being cute. That's the TikTok challenge really at the heart of what they the fine line they're walking. And I don't want to take anything away from how savvy they are in navigating it. They're brilliant at it. That's why they have millions of people watching it. But none of that sort of status accrues to them. Everybody's winning from this. The university, uh, I think the organizations that they are a part of, the culture, but I'm not sure we're going to look up and these young women will have become, I don't know, you know, marketing geniuses or anybody is you know, rushing to fund them to start, you know, a, a think tank or a business the way we would if they were men. And that is because the thing that they use to uh, to capture our attention is a powerlessness, Um and yes, so this, this idea was so much a part of what I just kept thinking about over and over again, especially with the outfits of the day. This were oh, once you hear it and you saw it, so much of the works, they did so much cultural work in how they present themselves to make sure that you understood their emphasis was on how cute they were.
1: We're going to take a break. But if you want to hear more from Tressie McMillan-Cottom and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment where today we're talking about blonde and how Tressie once ran afoul of blondes on TikTok. We'll also be talking about what blonde even means. Please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting that paywall on the Slate site and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash the waves plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Kat Chow, and I'm with Tressie McMillan-Cotton. We're talking about Bama Rush. Tressie, I want to zoom out now and talk more about the broader structures around the Greek system more generally, the power, the bigger societal implications that they might have, which we've kind of been talking around and alluding to. Um, and one of the things that I want to talk, talk about now is the machine.
2: Oh, Yeah. 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 This even sounds creepy. I couldn't believe they would... I think they call themselves that even. I thought, that's a yes. little on the nose, isn't it? It's a self-referential <laughs> oh thing, God. and it's so secretive. Do you want to explain what the machine is? So the machine... Well-documented for a secret society, by the way.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Not very secret, yeah.
2: So the machine is this, I guess, to be fair, I should say a supposed secret society, but a society uh, um, at the University of Alabama that is most directly tied to their student government association. That is analogous to like a, a political action committee kind of uh, in the real world that helps get uh, candidates elected for student government. And you go, wow, that's really sophisticated for student government until you realize that student government is seen as a precursor to political ambitions in state and regional uh, politics. And so the machine turns out the vote. Like, you know, like like churches and PACs do. Yeah, it turns out the vote, right? They put out official candidates and they turn out the vote for their candidates. And because of that, have a lot of, you know, indirect power in the university culture that extends to their alumni network. So it is also a way that the alumni network uh, influences the shaping of the student voice and power at the university, which matters if you think about how important student activism has been to sort of dragging universities into, well, you know, into social progress. And so it, some people think of the machine as a way that has kept the university culture more conservative Right? The power flows is bi directional, right? It is a way that students uh, tap the power outside of the university, but also the way alumni and people outside of the university exert power within the university system. So, directly influences student government associations, but there are also indirect ties to the fraternity network system, uh, which then extends to the sororities, because part of how they turn out the vote is by tapping those network ties to those other. Organize student body groups.
1: Yes, I am so glad that you mentioned how it really, the power flows both ways, or I mean, the power is really also flowing from the alumni network because once you are a brother or a sister, you are that for life. It is part of your identity. And that also makes me think about, you know, how we see different versions of the machine outside of Greek life. So to you, what does it say to us about power and how people get to use it once they have left the University of Alabama or really, you know, any equivalent university with the big Greek life?
2: Yeah, this was important to me to point out to people that this only seemed strange to us because it was happening in the South, because it was happening at the University of Alabama, because this actually happens at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, et cetera, all of the time. It happens so frequently and is reported on so regularly that we consider it a normal part of the way that politics and social reproduction happens in this country. We are right now having a conversation about the invisible levers of power shaping the Supreme Court and we many people saying well yeah but that's how power goes by by virtue of the fact that they went to certain institutions, that Ivy League institutions take for granted that part of what you are buying into when you attend an elite uh, selective admissions institution is that you are buying into that kind of access. So we take for granted that that's how it works at Ivy's. The only reason that we think that this kind of elite social reproduction is strange is because it is happening at the University of Alabama. But one of my points is that these sort of regional networks of power Especially in a country like the United States, that it is as wide and as diverse as ours is, is actually also super important. And so these regional networks of elite capture and elite control uh, and why those networks matter so much to people that they would fight to protect them. Uh, I think, become a lot more clear to us uh, when we don't think that they only happen at elite Northeastern institutions. But this is basically how power works. I think the question for us is whether or not this is how we want power to work. Is this compatible with our idea of what higher education institutions are supposed to do and be?
1: You referencing the Supreme Court made me think about how Um, The Supreme Court, of course, gutted affirmative action in um, higher education admissions, and also there was the ruling on student debt cancellation. And to me, I can't think about the phenomenon of Bama Rush and its brash and overt homogeneity in uh, the zeitgeist without thinking about the Supreme Court decisions in higher education. Of course, many things can exist in the same world, but I can't help but seeing these things as in tension with one another. What does this say to you? How does this speak to you?
2: I keep thinking that the tension is about our misplaced faith in colleges and universities as engines of social and economic mobility, whereas what the Supreme Court decisions are doing, they are ruling on what the institutions are. And we want to govern them based on what we want them to be. And that is the tension. What the Supreme Court decisions are fundamentally saying to me uh, is that they want to return and double down on institutions that primarily focus on a social reproduction function, that we are here to serve those who deserve to be educated. Who deserve to be credentialed and who deserve to then enter into the world at a certain status, right? We're here to rubber stamp and to certify your social status. You go to these right schools, you go to this system, therefore, and thereby, we, you know, with a magic wand like Harry Potter or something, we now confer upon you that you, you know, that you are the rightful o- o- owner and inheritor of your, you know, whatever privileges you inherited from your family especially affirmative action decision is sort of indirectly the student loan decision is about, it is a retreat from the idea of higher education institutions writ large, overall, the whole system, being responsible for that other piece, which is that they are supposed to transform the conditions of your social origins. They're supposed to be able to transform where you started in life and not certify who you are, but certify what you know, what you can contribute, your talents, your skills. And I think we see as a retreat from that, and that is the tension. In some ways, the Supreme Court decision might be the more brutally honest assessment of what some institutions have been doing for the last 40 or so years.
1: I think that There has been a lot of backlash to, for example, the Bama Rush documentary, where many University of Alabama students were not happy with it for, you know, many reasons, their own reasons. But again, that is a university where in 1963, Governor George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door to block the entry of James Hood and Vivian Malone, two Black students, and You know, Wallace was also the governor who, in his inaugural speech, said,
0: I draw the line in the dust and toss the gauntlet before the feet of tyranny, and I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever.
1: I'm watching these TikTok videos, and I'm getting chills because I personally never was interested in Greek life at the University of Washington, my alma mater, but even if I had been, I think it would have been perhaps deeply unsettling. I'm not sure that these Alabama sororities will ever truly integrate. And I guess I wanted to know what your sense of this was, too.
2: So I think it's important to point out that I'm not, I'm not entirely sure that there's a huge demand uh, from a lot of non-white students uh, to, to rush I mean, right. I want to shout out the fact that um, there is a long, proud history of black Greek letter organizations. I am a member of a black Greek letter organization. So shout out to Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority Incorporated, by the way. Yeah, you got to do that work. Uh, there are uh, a growing number of Hispanic serving uh, Greek letter organizations, Asian American, indigenous, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure. I never want to give them too much credit. I'm not sure they're that popular with non-white students. Having said that, there are there is on the record the fact that there have been non-white students who have sought to be admitted and to have tried to rush, and the like statistical record of their acceptance is pretty poor. So, you know, I want to take their desire to participate seriously. So if people want to want to integrate them, what does that mean exactly?
1: So to refer back to that Bama documentary, when the director did interview some Black sisters, the feedback was, I am less desirable to the fraternity brothers than my white sisters. And one of the young women that they interviewed, her name was Rain, she was relatively outspoken and also forthcoming about being a Black woman at the University of Alabama in her sorority, while also still kind of being very guarded and saying that she was appreciative. I have come to know and love the people in my sorority and and to know that they wouldn't have loved
0: or trusted me 40, 50 years ago, it makes me feel upset. And I I honestly, for my own
1: self-preservation, don't really like to think about it.
2: I think about her, I think about that interview a lot. And that interview shaped, uh, you know, a, a significant part of this argument, which was joining is not the same as integrating. Joining the organization is not the same as integrating its role in social reproduction. Because what she was saying when she said, I do not get the same beauty privilege as my white sorority sisters, is that she was really calling out quite elegantly where the actual power of the sorority was located. Her sisters could accept her, but unless the fraternities accepted her, then she could not access the true power of being a member of that sorority.
1: That male gaze, That's we're coming right. back to that. That's Can't right. Can't escape it.
2: And that is the actual currency. We can talk all day long about sisterhood and friendship and going through with a life with a cohort of women, but fundamentally, the power of full access still resided with the men and whether they just found you desirable and beautiful and here race and class would always always matter not just in Alabama where trust me it matters but here all of the United States and all of pop culture is implicated being admitted is not the same as being a full member of what makes that sorority what it is
1: Tressie, thank you for going down this rabbit
2: hole with me. Absolutely a delightful rabbit hole. I'd do it with you anytime, Kat. Thank you.
1: That's our show this week. I'm Kat Chow. I wrote and produced this episode. You can follow me on Instagram at catchow underscore. Find me there and tell me what you liked about this episode. And if you didn't like anything, I will probably leave you on red. You can find Tressie McMillan Cotton on TikTok at black underscore was underscore genius. Instagram and Twitter or X at McPhD. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. And we'd love to hear from you. Really. Send us your opinions, your gripes, what you loved, what we should talk about next. Our email is thewaves@slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different topic, different rabbit hole, same time and place, same host. Yours truly, Cat Chow. Over and out. okay so for today's slate plus segment we're talking about blonde so many of the women participating in Bama rush are blonde will continue to be blonde through natural or very chemical ways very expensive chemical ways and it is this to use one of your words tressie enduring symbols of so much beauty and class And, Trusty, so I have wanted to talk to you about this for a while, Um, especially because you, in the not-so-distant past, ran afoul of uh, blondes on the internet. Maybe in particular
2: Nordic TikTok? Yeah. Who, by the way? Feisty. Let me just (laughs) tell you. Uh, Don't know if I'd run afoul of them again, if given a chance. (laughs) But uh, it got you banned from TikTok for a while, right?
1: Okay. So what, what happened? Can you recap that?
2: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, first of all, I have no business on TikTok. I think that's my number one takeaway. (laughs) Uh, I was experimenting. However, I am a professor in one of my lives. And one of my responsibilities is to like know what the apps are. So I'm on TikTok unadvisedly. And someone sent me a TikTok about a girl who was saying to her mother, was trying to get her mother to verify for someone else that she was indeed a natural blonde.
1: And this woman had deep roots that were
2: very, very dark. Roots so deep and so dark, even I noticed them. And once I explained to people that I have sort of a blindness about those things, but even I could see the roots. And the mother couldn't even bring herself to lie. This is why the, why the video was funny, because the mother didn't say you were a natural blonde. The mother responded, yeah, you were blonde when you were born, <laughs> which is a slightly <laughs> different answer than the one that the young woman was going for. And it was funny. And I said, see, this is my thing about blondes. I said, I can never tell who's supposed to be one. I said, and you can tell she's not talking about a hair color. She's talking about an identity.
1: yes. And I mean, okay, to your point, and then I want to get back to the identity bit. I have heard a bunch of parents over the years um, who I have just, you know, been at parties with or just run into in professional senses who have talked about their newborn babies who are blonde with blue eyes and how, you know, maybe disappointing it is when their hair gets darker Mm -hmm. or something of that nature. And when I hear that, I'm just, I'm so fascinated. I mean, like, I never had the chance to be a natural blonde. I'm Chinese. You know, both parents have dark hair. This was not even a thing that occurred
2: to me as a possibility. Same.
0: And it just, I mean, what is blonde? That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash The Waves Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Waves Plus.